Good morning. I want to ask you guys about something that I've been told many times and I'm having a hard time believing. Somebody told me that the older you get, the wiser you become. Is that not true? I, I, I thought that was supposed to be true. I mean, I'm, I'm not that old. I'm, I'm, I'm getting older each day. This weekend, I had my first major event where I had to go buy reading glasses. And I, I, I've never, I, I can no longer, if I hold this this close, I can no longer read it. It's blurry, and it's, it's freaked me out a little bit. So, uh, but I'm trying to look at the positive, right? So I'm going to have to get reading glasses. But supposedly, the older you get, the wiser you become. Well, I'm having trouble with that one, too, because I was not very wise this weekend. Uh, because I have been, all weekend long, over in Live Oak, Florida, at our diocese camp and conference center, Camp Weed over there, and I've been taking part in uh, Happening 139. And for those of you who don't know what Happening is, Happening is this wonderful experience that involves teenagers who come together for a long weekend in which they're being led by their fellow teenagers. We have two of our own teenagers there. We uh, have Lena Perry and Amelia Anderson. She's doing great, by the way, just letting you all know. And uh, I have been part of the few adults that help out with this. I'm on what's called the God Squad. See, they don't really need me for much, but they do need us clergy to do services and sacraments and whatnot and be there to assist where we can. So that's what I've been doing this weekend. And it's wonderful. I love it. But I was in Live Oak, Florida at 6.30 this morning. That's where the wisdom began to fade as I jumped in my car and made the mad dash across the northern half of the state to get here back to Jacksonville for the 8 o'clock service, and I made it. But it's made me question, is truly getting older wise? I need to revisit that and try to work on that myself. But I'll tell you, there's a reason why I would do something so crazy is to spend a whole weekend over in the center of the state and then try to get here to be with you this morning. And that has two things. One is happening is spectacular. Those of you who know what happening is, I don't have to explain this to you. Those of you who've never experienced before should know that, as I said, this is all being led by teenagers. Teenagers who are in high school right now who have invited over 30 of their fellow teenagers and peers to come from their variety varieties of schools come to the camp and spend a whole week of being uh, experiencing Jesus. And again, it isn't me doing anything. It is the teenagers who are leading this. They are sharing each and every day with all of their peers something about Jesus Christ. And I'm amazed by that because I have two teenagers in my life. Well, my oldest daughter's 20 now, but she's still pretty much a teenager. She still acts like a teenager. I have a 15-year-old, and I can tell you, to see teenagers take a whole weekend, they get there, the team gets there early on Friday, they're going to be there. I'm going to get in the car when the service is over and drive straight back over there for the closing that's at 3 o'clock or 4 o'clock this evening. They spend an entire weekend to talk about Jesus and to share their faith with their fellow peers. Teenagers who do tons of stuff now, who are in sports and take, uh, have classes to take and homework to get done and video games to play and Instagram to put things on and Snapchat and all the things I don't really want to know about. They're very involved in it and they have put all of that aside in order to spend a whole weekend at camp to talk about Jesus. I would not be the right priest if I didn't want to go get involved in that. So that's one. The second reason is Today's scripture lesson from the gospel is so good that I didn't want to miss the chance 
to come and talk to you about it. Because in my mind, a bunch of teenagers getting together and talking about Jesus and this wonderful gospel lesson have a lot of connections that all of us need to think about in our spiritual life. As we work on, as I was telling the kids here, our own spiritual gifts of connecting and sorting out what this Jesus thing is all about. It's hard for me to tell you that these teenagers have got it down. We ourselves struggle with it. And so I won't lie to you, going and being with them helps inspire me as much as I'm sure I do any inspiration for them. But as I was driving across today, I was again thinking about the wonderful gospel that we have. This gospel lesson has uh, been always a part of this season after, uh, after Epiphany. And it's also one of those stories that everybody knows something about. Whether you study the Bible or not, whether you even go to church ever, people have always heard that this guy Jesus once turned water into wine. As I've said several times, I don't understand how we haven't converted the whole world to come and be in our group if the guy we worship can turn water into really good wine. Not the cheap stuff either, the really good wine that everybody has heard this story. Maybe a few people know a little bit more about Jesus walking on water, even more exciting and entertaining. But everybody has heard about turning water into wine with Jesus. The hard part is that's all they know. That's the focal point is this miraculous act of Jesus turning water into wine. What they miss and what we often miss is how important this story is. Because if all it was about was water and wine, it would be exciting, but it wouldn't have a whole lot to give us in our lives to help us understand what Jesus is all about. But this story, if we can work on our spiritual gifts to read deeper into the Bible, it can reveal so many things about our faith in Jesus Christ. And perhaps it can tell you why it's so powerful, so changing, so life-saving, that it can even cause a load of teenagers to spend a whole weekend talking about God's love for them. Let's look at that passage. If you, if you have the scripture, you can look at it. If you don't, I, I'll read it to you. But we have to remember, let me set this up for you. This passage from John's Gospel is not deep into the story. This is the very beginning. Most of you know that the first chapter of John's Gospel, which we read on Christmas Day, is called the prologue. A prologue is the setup, right? It's the beginning point. The story actually begins in John chapter 2. And it is an, uh, amazing. If you think about the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they always have some pretty good starting points. The birth of Jesus, Matthew and Luke. Uh, John's, or Mark's Gospel begins at Jesus' baptism, the beginning of his ministry. Isn't it interesting that the Gospel of John starts off by telling us a story about Jesus going to a party? He's going to a pretty vibrant party because it's been going on, we're told, for three days. Jesus, the Son of God, the one who is the Word made flesh, begins his ministry in John's Gospel by going to this wedding feast in Cana. I'm just happy he took his mom with him because that's a good indicator that this is a big party. But that's not really where it begins, is it? The first passage of this scripture says, on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And I'd like to say that as important as Jesus turning water to wine is, that first passage, that first section that says on the third day may be even more powerful. Why is that? Because early Christians would have read this and instantly noticed 
the number three. They would have noticed that this is beginning on the third day. This is a wedding celebration. It's made me think, and I've shared this with the numerous people this morning, about my own wedding in Ireland. Now, the Irish, they know how to throw a good party. And let me just tell you, Irish weddings don't happen on Saturday. They happen on Friday. If you get a wedding uh, an invitation to an Irish wedding, you'll take a day off from work to go to this. This is a big party. It begins on Friday, and I can tell you, so much food, so much wine, so much celebration that went on on the first day of my wedding. And guess what? Saturday morning, everybody stayed. And they got up and the party continued. We had a cookout. We brought out more wine. We probably spent more time ordering cases of wine than anything else for our wedding. And the party continued to go on. So the idea for the Israelites of having a wedding that was so amazing that you spent the whole weekend doing it makes sense to a guy who went through an Irish wedding five years ago because it fits that. But here's the problem. This is Ireland. The majority of the people there are good Roman Catholics. The party may go on Friday and Saturday, but it don't go on on Saturday, on Sunday, right? Sunday's the third day. The Irish know, and as we as well know, that the party has to conclude. Trust me, I have this discussion with American weddings wanting to have a reception at our church. The party has to be over late on Saturday because you know what? We have church on Sunday morning. The third day is the Lord's Day. It's a time to finish that wonderful celebration of marriage, of the bride and the bridegroom coming together in the very place that reveals to us what it all means in the sacrament of marriage, which is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, of course, on the third day should be an instant clue that something magnificent is happening in this gospel lesson of the wedding in Cana in Galilee. It should tell us that something major is being alluded to here, that this wedding celebration is happening, and on the third day, a big event is about to happen. And what brings that on? Well, the mother who Jesus invited comes up to him and says, man, the party's going on, but it's about to end quickly because the wine that we need for the joy and the celebration has run dry. Mary comes to Jesus and says, they have no wine. And Jesus' response to that is a little tricky because Jesus says, woman, what concern is that of you and me? Now, I'll just tell you what, if my mom told me to do something and I said, woman, what concern of this is this to you and me? I would have got smacked. I bet some of you would be in the same boat, right? But Jesus is trying to delve deeper into this. He wants us to understand the people reading this passage would have realized what Jesus was saying. His time has not yet come. They know what the story is to the answer of the wine running out of the land of Israel. They know that wine is an example of the exuberance and joy of God and his relationship, the bride and the bridegroom, God and God's creation. The wine has run out. They would understand that and they would know that when Jesus says, woman, this is not for me to do right now. My time has not yet come. That third day will be coming at the end of the story. But what Jesus is alluding to is that the very beginning is an indicator of how the ending will be. That's how massively major this story is today. And so Mary doesn't smack Jesus, thank goodness. She doesn't get upset. She looks at the servants and she says to the servants who are suffering, let's not forget, this is a grand party. They've run out of wine. 
Can you imagine if you were working that wedding, if you were the caterer for that wedding? They must have been pulling their hair out. What are we going to do? The party's over. The wine has run out. And this woman comes up and says, do whatever he tells you to do. She's making a point of trying to indicate to them that something major is happening at this wedding, just as she's trying to indicate that what she is interceding for, what she's stepping in the midst of, the mother of God is saying to all, to, to God, our people are suffering. The wine has run out. And when she turns to the people and says, do whatever Jesus tells you to do, she's giving them the answer to the problem. Now, let me just say, some of those servants probably had a hard time thinking this was worthwhile. They probably said, you know what, this guy's crazy. We're going to go down the wine cellar. There's got to be at least one more bottle of wine down there. But there were certain servants who listened to Jesus. And Jesus moves in in that moment and he says, we have six big giant jars that hold thousands of gallons of water. These gallons of water are there for the purification of the Israelite people. Fill those up with water, because this is where the purification begins. And then he says, draw out that water and take it to the chief steward. We have no indication of how Jesus turns this into water, into wine. The water and the wine is not what's so important. The importance is that those servants listen to Jesus, and they do what he tells them to do. And guess what? The wine comes out in a way that's never been experienced before. The chief steward calls the bridegroom and says, hey... You save the best wine for last. Nobody does that. And the most important piece of this scripture, what I want to leave you with, is not the water and the wine, not the, really the communication of Jesus and his blessed mother. It's that little set of parentheses that says in the middle, when the, stewards taste, when the steward tasted the wine that had become wine, the water that had become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. So this great man who should have known everything, who was stressed about the world falling apart, this man who I guarantee knew all about the politics of the world that were going on, all the stress of the government, all the worry about rebellion that was going on, he tasted that wine and was overwhelmed with it and had no idea where it came from. It was the servants who knew that it came from Jesus. And brothers and sisters, that's the most important part of the whole story. The servants have been awakened to this exceptional miracle that's occurring. That new wine is being poured into the people of Israel. That a change is underway. That salvation is about to happen. The hour has not yet come yet, but when the next three days occur, we'll know that the party actually begins on the toughest day of the, of, of the calendar. It begins on Friday, Good Friday. Jesus will die on the cross. How is this the beginning of a celebration? How is this the beginning of a wedding feast? How is this the beginning of new wine coming in that's been dried up and left everyone thirsty? Well, we know because on the third day, Jesus rises from the dead. On the third day, that wine becomes blood, and that blood that's been poured out comes back to life to give all of us the hope we need in the world that we face, the world that's full of death and anger and darkness. How could we hold on without the hope that comes to us from Jesus Christ? As Christians, it's not the miracle, it's finding our way to it. With all of these teenagers waiting for me to get back at Camp Weed, it's the stories they're telling that are amazing. Can you tell your story? Can you share with people 
what Jesus has done to you, not the miracles. We all wait for the miracles. Father, why don't miracles happen anymore? I hear that all the time. Miracles are happening to you every single day. Open yourselves up to the new wine that will come into us through Jesus Christ. And I promise you, you'll begin seeing those miracles and you'll begin taking out whole amounts of your time to tell people about them. Your life will be changed. Your life will be saved. I'm going to go jump in my car and drive back to Camp Weed because I want to hear those stories. Think about what your story is and start sharing it.